As you look in your programs, you'll notice that it uh, says not to be pressed into the mold of this world for this section. And uh, after being blessed last night, I'm confident that Alex has something profound and biblical for you and I to apply to our lives in, in a wonderful way to just sweetly walk in love with God so that we have the tools not to cave. Don't you hate it when you cave to the things of the world? I just get so frustrated with myself when I cave. And I hurt. We were chatting about God's grace, uh, a friend of mine, one of the men's leaders, and, and how often we can so cheapen God's grace and look at sin and do sin, but not end up with a broken heart. It becomes more of a flip, oh Lord, forgive me, and move on, rather than recognizing the anguish that we've caused to our Heavenly Father. Uh, I want to be that man even more. And I pray you do. Brother Alex, come and share what you have been laid on your heart by the Spirit of God. Please, brother. Please welcome Alex again. Rich, what time should I stop? What, what, was it, what is a good stopping time? Uh, 45. 9.45. Oh, oh, that far? You can stop at 35 if you want. Okay. That's grace. See, we're not under law here. We're under grace. So we can just go on and on. Who knows? Let's just have a moment of silence where you prepare your heart as we talk about a subject that really touches us where we are every day, uh, the indoctrination industry of the media. So I want you to just, in silence, just say to the Lord, Lord, speak to me where I need to be spoken to and um, so that we're obedient children. Take your Bibles now, and we want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and um, this is such a marvelous passage on the resurrection from the dead. What subject could most speak to us than the subject of eternity? You're only here a very short time. The Bible says that repeatedly. Our, our life is brief and uncertain, but eternity is forever. It's a long time. To know you will be raised from the dead and be made like Christ. No wonder Paul in verse 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Notice present tense. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, His resurrection, His conquering sin and death and Satan. Now, as a result of this great and glorious doctrine, and as a result of the Corinthians being deceived by false teachers or the philosophers or the culture of their day, he says this, and it's a marvelous passage, therefore, my beloved brothers, 
We've had a lot of conflict together, but you're beloved of God, and you're my brothers. Here's the, here's the imperative. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. Positive side we'll look at later. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, I said we wanted to illustrate the biblical imperative, be steadfast, be unmovable with a biblical illustration. And that was Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. What a verse. It's not just for children. It's for men. Daniel and his three friends purposed in their hearts not to be defiled. Again, they already made their decision before they faced the temptation. It's always good to know how you're going to act. You know how you're going to act so you don't get caught off guard. They resolved not to let Babylon defile them. So let's look now at our second point. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Two verses to read, and I'll have them on the screen there. And I think if you see them on the screen, because you have different Bibles, it'll be a little easier. See, we up here yet? Here we go. Is there a verse up there? Did, did a verse not come in there? Don't let the world squeeze you into a mold. I had two verses, but maybe it didn't get on. Who knows? Who, who can understand these things? I can hardly run a computer. All right. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Let me read two verses to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34 shows us the heart of this problem of the resurrection. Do not be deceived, O Corinthians. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Now listen to this. For some have no knowledge of God. This is the bad company. People who had no knowledge of God were influencing the people of God. And a fundamental, rock-solid doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. I say this to your shame. And then um, Romans 12, 2, same idea, but I'm going to use the famous paraphrase by J.B. Phillips. And if you haven't heard this before, it's well known. It's good to get to know. His paraphrase of Romans 12, 2. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Let me read that again. It's so good. Don't, some of your Bible said, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. Thus, you will prove in practice that the will of God is good, acceptable to him, and perfect. Now, here is a second way to victory. First way, resolve in your heart. Dare to be a Daniel. Know what you're going to do. You'll stand for God. Even if you have to face Nebuchadnezzar, face the Babylonians, you will not let them defile you. Now, a second way that we're steadfast, unmovable, and that we press forward to plan for victory is don't let the world around you, and it's all around us, comes right into our home, squeeze you into its mold. Let God remake you so that your whole attitude and mind is changed. Now, the Corinthians actually turn out to be examples for us <clears throat> of how culture knocks us off our feet. Culture around us destabilizes us. It hinders our growth. It causes us 
to love this present world. Now, the problem with the Corinthians was, at root, worldliness. They were a worldly group of people. Paradoxically, they were so proud of their knowledge, so proud of their wisdom. They even got them to fight with one another and the Apostle Paul. Yet, they're the ones who are unstable, and they're the ones Paul has to say three times, do not be deceived. They were deceived by other people outside of their circles. It was probably the basic Greek cultural idea uh, against the body. And so, resurrection of a corpse was not really popular in society. You wouldn't have seen it much on TV. What we learn here is how culture influences our lives. Someone said this, there was no problem that the church was in Corinth. The problem was too much of Corinth was in the church. It was a worldly group. In chapter 3, Paul says this, you're acting like mere men. In chapter 3, he says, you are acting as if you are devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back to that verse 33 and 34 because Paul puts his finger right on the problem. Do not be deceived. Christians can be deceived. Another way of translating that is saying, stop being seduced. No longer be led astray. It's a negative imperative. You can be led astray as a Christian. You can be deceived if you do if you allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. And then he tells us how they got to see bad company ruins good morals. In other words, they were allowing other influences into their hearts and minds, and definitely into the church, not the influence of the things of God. Now, we are surrounded by a culture and endless influences to give us bad decisions, and to ruin our morals and our values and our, and our beliefs. And this is what's happening here. Bad company ruins good morals. So Paul sort of shakes them right now. Remember, it's all in the doctrine of the resurrection. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Some of your Bibles say something a little different, as is right. In other words, shape up. Wake up. Snap to it. What's happening to you? Do you know what's happening to you? You're denying and the resurrection. You're playing with the gospel. You profess this, and now you're turning from it. Wake up. You're like a person who's drunk, and you're not thinking straight. Now, keep this all in mind as we look at our modern, modern day. Do not go on sinning, because their being led astray caused them to sin, deny the resurrection, and all the terrible fighting in the church. For some have no <coughs> knowledge of God. In other words, this is in, in one sense the key. The bad company, the people influencing them, did not know God. They're listening to people who don't know God. When you spend hours on the TV, you're listening to people who do not know God. When you go to university and you hear professors who mock and laugh at us, you're listening to people who don't know God. That's what they were doing. They don't know the knowledge of God. Remember what uh, Jesus said to the Sadducees? They denied the resurrection. He said to them, you don't know the power of God. That's why you're all mixed up. 
That's what happened here. You don't know the power of God to change us in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, he will change you and transform you. You don't know the power of God. You're listening to people who don't know anything. They're ignorant of the things of God. Now, I say this to your shame, he says. Now, I want to apply this to us today because the point is as relevant as it was in the first century as it is today. Today, we face strong outside influences from our culture. Babylon's alive. Nebuchadnezzar's well and doing very well. And they are masters of counterfeiting. They are masters at deceiving. When Jesus Christ defined Satan, he said this. He's a murderer. That's why you see so much killing in the world. He loves to kill people. It's to him, it's like a hobby. Killing, murdering people. But he says this, he's a liar from the beginning. Do you know we actually know Satan's strategy? We actually know it. You know what his strategy is? Flood the world with lies. Economic lies, political lies, religious lies, philosophical lies, ethical lies, marital lies, gender lies, sexual lies. He floods He floods the world with all kinds of counterfeit teaching. Now, the culture in which we live, the air in which we breathe, is actually ruled by Satan. The Bible makes that very clear. He's the prince of the power of the air. Now, I want to talk a few minutes about something that we're we're pretty naive about, and that is the tools of influence. How does... American secular culture come right into this church, into your household. How does it do it? What are the processes of brainwashing, just like Daniel faced? Well, it comes right into your home and it comes right into this church through the television set. It comes into your home through very entertaining movies comes into your home now in a new way that didn't exist uh, 35 years ago, and that's the Internet. Your children are on it all the time. It's the secular air we breathe. It's the schools we attend. Now, these are the tools of influence. Now, we normally talk about the entertainment industry, right? The entertainment industry. And we get fascinated with Movie stars. It's actually not the entertainment industry. It's the indoctrination industry. You're being indoctrinated. You're being influenced by people who do not know God. Bad companies corrupt morals. So I'm saying what Paul said, wake up out of your drunken stupor and look at what you're being sold. Now, if I were to say to you, don't watch TV anymore, don't watch movies anymore, well, it would probably be a a, a waste of my breath because you're going to see TV and you'd say to me, well, that's just legalism. Can't watch TV, can't go to movies, shouldn't see these things on the internet, shouldn't listen to this kind of music. So, here's what I'm going to say to you. Think. Think. That's not legalistic. Think. Did you know that God made you a thinking machine? You're a thinker. You got a little tiny organ between your two ears, three or four pounds. 
most powerful instrument, most powerful organ in the universe, most complex thing in the universe. And now it has the Holy Spirit to make it alive. God, the Holy Spirit's inside you. You are now alive unto God. world wants to kill that life unto God. When you sit down to watch a TV show with your children, just say, kids, we're going to think about what we're being taught. Because the man at the console is teaching you something. The world's, the world's very, very uh, good at teaching. Now, let me give you an, in, uh, an example of how powerful TV movies are to influence our thinking and our culture and actually change all our own values, things we believe. In September of 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, called DOMA, became federal law, overwhelmingly approved by the Congress. President of the United States, Bill Clinton, signed it, could not have been voted down. It, it was uh, overwhelmingly stated that marriage is a heterosexual uh, relationship, and this became a federal law that would then uh, be implied onto states when they would want to get benefits for people they would have to now say, Doma says, this is a definition for marriage. All right? It was a good thing. 17 years goes by. That's not a long time. Unless, of course, you're just first born. But for most of us, 17 years is not that long a time. 17 years later, 2013, the act, the Doma Act, was considered by the Supreme Court of the United States unconstitutional approved by Bill Clinton and the very people who first advocated it. Now, here's the question I have to ask you, and it's really a profound question. How in 17 years did the leaders of our country say marriage is a, homos, is a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman? They, defi- they defined a spouse. How did 17 years later many of these same people say, this is terribly unconstitutional, it's against human rights, and the Supreme Court voted it down? How do you think in 17 years that kind of consciousness changed? Do you think it was intellectual debate? Powerful books that were written? It was all done by the media, by your TV set. Now, if you look at this 17-year period, we don't want to even waste time on this, but if you look at this 17-year period between the DOMA Act being inaugurated and it's being Uh, called unconstitutional. Many of the sitcoms that you sit and watch, your children watch, many of them all promoted a same-sex marriage lifestyle. Major movies, I could name them with some of the biggest movie stars you know, had movies that laughed and mocked anyone who disagreed with this. Within a 17-year period, the television and the movies and the air we breathed turned the whole consciousness of this country around. Now, I tell you this to show you how powerful the media is. And so I'm saying to you, when you sit down and watch a TV show, when you're watching a movie, when you're on the internet, when you're watching advertisements, when you're listening to music today, I'm asking you to just do one thing, one thing only. Think. Think. What is the man at the console teaching me? Now, take your Bibles real quickly and turn to uh, First. Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. This is very important for us today 
Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, now get this, and the teachings or doctrines of demons. Did you know that demons are good teachers? Yeah, yeah, they're good. I don't know where they got their education level, but they're good teachers. Satan is a teacher. He's a liar. He's a great counterfeiter. Whatever is good, he will immediately counterfeit it. Immediately. Whatever God says, isn't it interesting in the garden? Has God said, you will not die. Isn't it interesting that he attacked marriage? He ruined the family right from the beginning. Has God said, doubt God? Then an out and out lie. God has not said this. You will not die, Eve. Eat of the fruit, and you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. He is a master of lies and deceptions and counterfeit. He is a teacher. There is the doctrine, the teachings of demons. There are deceitful spirits, and it comes right into your home, and you don't do anything about it. You sit there and eat your, your crackers or pretzels or whatever you eat and say, boy, this is really entertaining. The great issues we're facing today, the big issues we are facing today are issues that are dear to our heart and clearly marked in the Word of God. And they are gender issues. They are marriage issues, fatherlessness issues, sexuality, materialism, hyper-busyness, amusement, endless distractions. These are the big issues being promoted to us by the doctrine of demons. The indoctrination industry. So I'm saying to you, my dear brothers, if you are going to be steadfast and unmovable and plan for victory, then you are going to have to not let the world squeeze you into its mold because that's what it wants to do. And it has powerful tools to do that. I feel for our young people. I do. They hardly have a chance. They hear about these great movies. They go to these movies full of vile cursing. And then the violence, not just the sexuality, the violence. And we get immune to it. And it's laughable. And it's fun. And it's it's just entertainment. No, it's indoctrination. They're teaching you something. Wake up from your stupor. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And all you have to do is turn a little switch on, and there it is, in your face, done in the most clever way possible. You're going to have to take a stand against these things. You're going to have to say, I'm not going to let the world teach me. I will let God teach me. The truth teach me. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Purpose in your heart. I'm not going to be defiled by that TV set that movie. So all I'm asking you to do is think. If you were to say to your children, you can't watch TV anymore, they'd probably run away from home or call social services and have you arrested. The best thing is to say, okay, you're going to see that show. I'm going to sit down with you. Let's watch it together. But we're going to ask questions. We're going to ask questions. I was in a home one time, and on the TV, families are watching TV, A man comes into the house with a knife and chases a woman around, repeatedly stabbing her. And they're all sitting there chewing on their pretzels. They should have gotten very sick and said, this is horrifying. This is terrible. 
but they're so immune to it. We're so immune to all this violence. If you have not watched television for decades and you see this, you can't watch. I literally, I'm going to tell you something. You can't watch it. You just go, oh, this is, why would anyone watch this? It's emotionally upsetting. Emotionally upsetting. It should be emotionally upsetting. You know why? We're to be holy as God's holy. Upsets God. I can assure you that. So I'm asking you to do one thing. Think. Think. Analyze. Ask questions. What is the man at the console trying to teach me? Because he's a teacher, and he's a good teacher, and he has a philosophy. And his philosophy touches the, the mainsprings of my own beliefs, marriage, gender, sexuality, material things. Let me just give you a threefold challenge in this area of the cultural wars in which we are involved in. Just quickly, because I commented on them last night. One, we are to be Christ-like heads of our home, but Babylon says, no way. The world says, no way. You're not going to be the head of your home. We don't allow that. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave him himself up for her. My dear beloved brethren, this is radical teaching in our culture today. Radical. We're like Neanderthals, social dinosaurs. The husband is the head of the wife. Now, I know it's been abused. It's given a bad rap, but we don't make doctrine based on distortions of the truth. Brothers, we must come to the Word of God to get our guidance for what kind of men we're to be in the home. And I said to you yesterday, and I'll just repeat it briefly. If you were not here, you can listen to the, the, the CD. We are to be Christ-like leaders. Christ-like. That's why you can keep needing to read the Gospels. Christ-like heads. I said to you, can you define a Christian home? I said to you, if you were to define a Christian home, it should be defined this way. A Christian home is a place marked by Love, it's really Christ-like love, initiated by the husband, not by the wife. It is the husband who initiates Christ-like leadership and love. Pretty radical. We're the only ones saying anything different. This is an awesome responsibility we have, an awesome responsibility. We have all failed. We need to get on our knees many, many times because to be male is to be selfish. We men are very, very selfish. The wives often carry the, such of the sacrifice of the home. They do the Bible reading for the children. They do the praying with the children. They get us to church, and uh, they keep us on track, although that should be our job. When our children were growing up, four children, every night we ate supper together. I insisted on that, that we would eat supper. We're 95% successful. And at the supper table, I wanted the children to see their father lead spiritually. And so every night after we'd have supper, and during supper we'd have conversation. Just a real quick sidetrack here. I noticed the time in Colorado Springs seems to go faster than in Denver. What's that, brother? Oh, we're going to gain an hour. An hour more sleep, so I'll just go on. I wanted my four girls to see their father as the spiritual head of the home. And so every night we did spiritual conversations. So my sidetrack was this. Let's remember when we get together, yes, let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about football and baseball. Okay, good. Then have spiritual conversation. 
Much happens in spiritual conversation with one another. Much happens. Good things happen like exhortation and comfort, encouragement. And every night we would do a little bit of Bible study. As they were, when they were small, just keep it small, keep it short. And then I would go around and ask each of them for a prayer request. And I would pray. I wanted them to see the spiritual head of their home as the father. That's God's will, period. Our society, our culture is 100% against this. Second, the second thing I want to just say to you, we are to be fathers who teach, but Babylon says we'll teach your children. There are places in the world where really the government wants to take over uh, the teaching of the children because they can do a much better job, as they say. But let me take you back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema of Israel, Lord our God is one. And listen to what God said to Israel at the very beginning. He gave them an educational program. People talk a lot today about education. Well, God is an educator, and he gave them the program. Here's the program. I can't improve on it, by the way. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Every dad is a teacher. How many here are dads or grandparents? Raise your hand. You are all teachers. God made you teachers. You say, but I, I, I have a hard time talking. Improve. <laughs> you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's God's educational program. Do you know before a child goes to school, they learn their language, their values, so many things from their parents which they'll never forget before the school system gets them. So God's program of education is fathers, teach them diligently to your children. Now, what kind of teaching? Sit them down with a blackboard and write on it? No. You shall talk of them, the commands of God, when you sit in your home. You're sitting down, you're relaxing, maybe you're getting ready to watch TV. Talk about the things of God. When you walk by the way, walking down the street, maybe you're having a little exercise. Maybe you're in the car driving. They didn't have cars in those days. You start talking about the Lord. You ask your children questions. Great thing to ask children lots and lots of questions. When they're little, they love questions. Ask them questions. Say, well, now, what do you think the answer is? Make them think. Make them think. God made them a thinking being. When you lie down, all right, you know, a really neat time of day with children is when you get to bed at night. Everyone's relaxed and you're lying in bed together. Kids love to get in bed with dad and mom. Say, children, what happened today? And, uh, you know, there was a big fight here in the family. Kids got really into it. What do you think the Lord thinks of that? What do you think we can do to improve that? And when you rise. In other words, all day long. All day long. You're a teacher. You're a teacher. Then, Ephesians 6, 4, very important passage. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I want to emphasize something here. Fathers are to instruct their children in the Lord. If your wife's doing all the teaching and the Sunday school is doing all the teaching, which I know happens to many, many men, we know that from our own church. In fact, it's interesting. The men just drop the kids off. They don't even know who the Sunday school teacher is. They don't even show any interest. I meet with men quite often, almost every day for lunch. I have lunch with men. And I'll ask them, you praying for your children? And watch this. They're not even praying for their own children. That's simple. They're sure not instructing them. Now, the Scripture says, God says, don't provoke your children to anger. It's something we're actually good at. Annoying them. But bring them up in the discipline. We're actually maybe better at discipline, but not the instruction of the Lord. Let me just make it 
as brief as I can. We are to be teaching parents. As my children got out of that little infant stage and small stage, I, I, I don't hardly remember spanking them. You know why? Because I was a teaching parent. And every time there was a problem, I took them up to the room. We sat on the bed and I said, okay, tell me the problem. I make them tell me. And I said, what should we do? I make them tell me. And then we talk about the issues and what's really involved here. All right, you blasted your sister in the face. That was not good. That was not good. What should we do about this? What do you think I should do? It hurts me more than it hurts you. And they go, I, I heard that before. You make them think through the issue and you make every situation not, hey, shut up, kids, or hey, get the, bring the garbage in. What's wrong with you? Do your homework. Instead, you make every situation, as Deuteronomy 6 says, a teaching situation where you work through the problem, you work through the discipline with them, you show them the principles of where they've gone wrong, and what you want is heart change, heart change. Sure, I can beat them into submission. I'm bigger than they are. I could really punish them harshly. But I'm not going to change their heart. They're just as hard as before. Be a teaching parent. I do not believe any child should be disciplined, spanked, or some punishment until you first taught them what's this all about and the lesson that is biblical and look at colossians 3 20, 21 fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged you know we dads sometimes provoke our children unnecessarily and we're just angry with them we're short-tempered with them we don't want to be bothered with the discipline or the time it takes to deal with them and so we provoke them we're the problem. We're provoking them. We're causing anger in them that does not need to be. One of the most important things you will build uh, with your children is relationship. Relationship. And if you have a relationship with them, they love to be with you, you've got 90% of the problem of raising a child. And another very important word is approachable. Appro Put those two words in your vocabulary, you young dads. Relationship. You build a relationship. You do not build a relationship by smacking them and cursing at them and yelling at them and get out of here. You build a relationship by gentle hands and careful teaching and have them be a part of the discipline. And then you should be approachable. Approachable. They could come to you with anything. They're not frightened of you. You're not a spirit-crushing giant. Listen to what Elton Trueblood wrote about the seriousness of raising children. No matter how much a man may be concerned with his work in the world, he cannot normally care about it as much as he cares for his family. This is because we have, in the life of the family, a bigger stake than most of us can ever have in our employment. We can change business associates. We can leave a poor job, but we cannot change sons. If we lose the struggle in our occupational interests, we can try again. But if we lose with our children, our loss is terrible and frighteningly f final. You have a very, very, very big job. It's, it's a huge job. And you know what it's called? Generation building. Those little kids all of a sudden become big kids. And if you're a grandparent, you know those little grandchildren become adult grandchildren. It happens so fast. You are to be in the process of raising them by being a teaching parent. And we always use the Word of God. We don't beat them with the Word of God. We don't hit them on the head. That doesn't work. You gently teach and instruct. 
And then third, just very quickly, we are to be holy men of God, but Babylon says we don't accept such men. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 14 and 16. As obedient children, this is a powerful passage, goes right along with Romans chapter 12 and our 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34 passages. As obedient children, that's what we want to be, obedient to the Lord. I don't want to be obedient to the TV and to the movies. They'll wreck your life. They're they're telling you lies. They are lying to you about what life is like. If you don't believe it, look at the world, the maritable misery of this world. All it's concerned about is drinking and drugs. It's totally addicted to all these chemicals. Can't drink enough. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When you were unsaved, you were ignorant. You were listening to lies. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. My dear friends, the world is full of lies. It's full of false pleasures. And it's Babylon. And it wants you to conform so they can be happy. How to be uh, holy in an unholy world is what we're going to turn to now. And it's right there in the Word of God. Every, isn't that interesting? Everything we need to live in our family, with our children, in our sexual life, it's all there in the Word of God. But we must be obedient children. Don't go to the passions of your former ignorance. Just ruined your life, broke your life. There's a man who calls me every morning at 6 in the morning. Imagine that. Every morning. Once in a while he doesn't call me. I don't know if he's sleeping or something. But every morning, right around 6 o'clock, I'll get this phone call. And it's a man I've known since teen years, and that's why he gets away with this. And when we were teenagers together, we went to church, and he made a profession of faith. And at 18, and I saw this with several of my friends, about 18 years of age, they walked away from the Lord. Walked away. Three or four of them. We stayed friends all these years, and thank God every one of them later in life in their 50s came to Christ. God had to use cancer. God had to use brokenness, but they came back to the Lord or were saved. I don't, who, who knows? Only the Lord knows. Anyway, this man calls me in the morning, every morning, to get his pep talk for the day. He's an over-the-road truck driver. He's been driving for 45 years. Rough, rough life. He's all over the country. Well, when he was 18 years of age, he heard a voice saying, Come to New York City. Pleasure beyond words. And an 18-year-old boy, he went and he plunged himself into the New York City lifestyle. Then he went to L.A. He literally moved and grooved with movie stars, big-name movie stars. He plunged himself into every kind of sexual sin. He told me at one time he was having sex with two and three women a day, beautiful women. He plunged himself into heavy drinking, partying. Well, you know... That's great when you're 20, but when you're 40, and now you've gained 150 pounds, and your brain's blitzed from so much alcohol, you lost your wife, your children were taken away from you, he was totally broken, totally broken. But you know, he thought he was having fun. He thought we were the boring ones, studying the Bible, going to Bible studies, and he would tell us, come over to New York, I'll show you a party fun. So the years go by. About seven or eight years ago, he calls me one day and he says, 
do you think I could be saved? I said, well, thief on the cross says you can be. He says, but you know, I rejected the gospel. I knew the gospel. And, and I, how can I be saved after all I've done and walked away from God? And so for a number of months, we worked through this until finally he submitted his life to Christ and believed that Christ could save the vilest of sinners, but not just a vile sinner who plunged himself to the bottom of the barrel, but a man who walked away knowingly from the gospel. Well, he's been saved now for eight years, trying to live the Christian life. Some of those old things are still there haunting him, but he's having victory slowly. How do you have victory when you have destroyed yourself like that? How do you have victory when the world basically took, took your life over? Well, that's going to be our next point here. Do we have time to go to the next point? What time do you want me to stop? Okay. Such grace. Hate these legalistic churches. It's 9.30, I have to stop, you know. Our third major point is grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, learning, growing, changing. Now, here is the positive side to all this. The positive side. If you're going to stand against our culture, if you're going to be steadfast, unmovable, if you're going to plan for victory, you've got to grow. You've got to fill your head and your heart with the things of God. And if you don't, you will not have the strength to stand against the cultural tsunami that is running right through your house through the TV and the movies and the Internet and the schools and the advertisements and the movies and, and, and the, the music your children sing. They, they, many of them don't even have a, have a chance. You must be a learner. You must be constantly growing and filling yourself with the truths of God's Word. So let's look at our first verse here, and I'm going to go through a lot of verses. I'm going to shoot them on the screen so that we can move quickly. Our third point is this, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, learning, growing, changing. Look at 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Here is the issue. We must resolve, we must purpose in our heart to grow, to be knowledgeable, to be strong in the Lord, to know the things of God, and to walk with God daily. It's the only way you can stand against the onslaught. Because you can't on your own. You may think you can. devil's much uh, smarter than you are. And he'll trick you. So the issue is this. The issue is this. You're either growing or stagnating. That's the issue. You're growing or you're stagnating. And when you stagnate, you're actually going backwards. The key to effective Christian living and holiness is your own personal growth in Christ. You are either growing in Christ or you're stagnating spiritually. You're either filling your head and your heart with the truths of God or you're filling your mind with filth. And you're even used to the filth. It's not a big deal anymore. You hear vile cursing and you think it's normal. You see people killing one another, you think that's entertaining. You see sexual acts in front of you and you don't get up and walk away. You're the dupe, and the world's already got you. You're not being strong in the Lord. 
So I want to look at the biblical mandate to grow in Christ. It's a mandate. It's a command. It's many times in the New Testament, but I'm only going to show you the key verses, and we'll come back to these. I'll get some started. Let's look first at 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Rather train. Now, you see that word train? You're going to have different translations. Discipline, exercise. I think the more accurate translation Picking up on the athletic metaphor is exercise. Exercise yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, yes, it is of value. Hope you do exercise your poor old vile body. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, Paul likes this athletic metaphor. The Christian is to be in constant gospel training. We are to be exercising our spiritual muscles. The great problem is we've stopped exercising. We exercise at the beginning of the Christian life, and then after a period of time, we become very negligent of our spiritual disciplines. We stop reading. We stop learning. We stop reaching forward. And we begin to drift. And when you drift, you go backward. D.A. Carson wrote these powerful words about spiritual drifting and its consequences. Listen to what he says. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of loss of self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness, deluding ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Train yourself in godliness. Exercise yourself in godliness. Discipline yourself in godliness. There is a side to the Christian life that is like being an athlete. Constant training, constant discipline, a program, a plan. Now that's what the scripture says. Exercise yourself to godliness. Then 1 Timothy 4.15 Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, the things of God, especially the the Word. Now, look at this, my dear brothers, so that all may see your progress. I love that statement. That all may see your progress. Not regress, progress. There is a thing called, and so actually a book, the Peter Pan Syndrome. Have you ever heard of it? The Peter Pan Syndrome. Men who never grow up. Peter Pan saying something like, I won't grow up, I won't grow up. There are men like that. They will not grow up. They will not read. They will not study. They will not listen. They will not learn. They don't make an extra effort. They're certainly not disciplining themselves to godliness. If I were to talk to your wife and children and ask them this simple question, have you seen spiritual progress in your father or in uh, your husband? What would they say? What about the people in your church? If I said to them, is Rich growing? They say, Rich. Oh, yes, yes, Rich. We remember who he is. Not really. 
Notice what the scripture says. He says, so that all may see your progress. In other words, Timothy, when the believers see your progress in the Lord, you know what's going to happen? They're going to be challenged to progress in the Christian life. You, you don't challenge others if you're going backward. You challenge others when you get out in front of them and you're progressing in your Christian life. Uh, Bobby Clinton wrote a book a number of years ago on mentoring, which is a very, very good book. But he said before he wrote this book, he studied hundreds of Christian leaders and every leader in the Bible. And he said this, only 25% ended well. And here's his conclusion. It's a very excellent statement. We have observed that most people cease learning by the age of 40. Now, Bobby Clinton's an expert, I'm not, but I can tell you in our church it's about age 25. They stop reading, they stop listening. They know the newest restaurants, the newest car, or the, the sports team. We have observed that most people cease learning by the age of 40. By that we mean they no longer actively pursue knowledge, understanding, experience that will enhance their capacity to grow and contribute to others. Most simply rest on what they already know. Now, this is a powerful statement. But those who finish well in the Christian life maintain a positive learning attitude all their lives. Those who finish well the Christian life because they, they have a positive learning attitude all their lives. Now, this is the very Word of God. We call it Holy Bible. It's, look, it's a big book. It's a big book. God's the author. It's the best-selling book in the world. It's the wisdom of God. It's the knowledge of God. It will save your soul. This book will save you for eternity, but it will guide you in every path of life. Every question you have in life, except should I buy a red car or a blue car, is right here in the Bible. Right here in the Bible. You are to master this book. This is to be your guide. Look, it's a big book. And if you don't burn the midnight oil, and if you don't make some sacrifice, you will never know this book. I'm sad to say, many born-again Christians, this book is a foreign book to them. They do not even know the storyline. You know it's a story. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. God created. God recreates it has the progressive revelation of the things of God and of salvation and redemption and the people of God. Most people don't even know where the books of the Bible fit. They do not even know the simple storyline of redemption. They are ignorant of the things of God, and so they are easily misled. And they turn the TV on, they think that's reality. It's not reality. It's counterfeit reality. And so within a short period of time, they think more like the world than they think like God. So my challenge to you, my challenge to you right now is this. Be a learner. Press yourself. Grow. Listen to good messages. I'm going to talk in a moment just about some of the ways you can do this. Now, one or two more verses. 2 Corinthians 4.16. So, we do not lose heart. This man had more problems than all of us here put together. Though our outward nature is wasting away. How many here are over 50? Raise your hand. Be honest. You're in a church. Don't lie. Okay, if you're over 50, you know this verse. The outward nature is wasting away. And that's why you have all these pills. And you have to see doctors. And uh, that's why you look so terrible. It's wasting away. 
Now, this is my personal philosophy of aging. Our inner nature is being renewed every year. Does anyone want to say anything? Every day. Didn't say every month, every week. In other words, daily, I am growing. I'm being renewed. Now, that's my philosophy of aging. I may be growing old in my body. I'm trying to hold it back the best I can. You know, I'm eating the vegetables and I'm trying to walk and I'm trying to do all those things, get enough sleep, but eventually it's going to beat me. But inside the real me in Christ, alive unto God, is every day growing, meeting with God, absorbing the truths, the great truths of Scripture. The Bible, to me, is the most exciting book in the world. As one man said, it's full of infinities and immensities. You will never master this book on this earth. So that should be your philosophy. The inner nature is being renewed, invigorated every single day. We're growing people. Then Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. But one thing I do, not 20 things I do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, victories, failures, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's a man who says, one thing I do. Moody said, when I get to heaven, I don't want to say these 40 things I dabbled in. One thing I do, I press forward in Christ. I don't even look back. I had a lot of victories. I had some big-time problems. You know, I got beat up and lost at sea and uh, imprisoned. I don't look back. I look forward. By the way, if you get on I-25 with your car, try driving looking through the rear of your mirror. No, try it sometimes. really interesting. You may want to make sure your insurance policies are all caught up No, you can't drive a car looking through the rearview mirror. God only allows you to look through the windshield. In life, he only allows you to look forward. And if you're looking backwards all the time, you have a problem. Now, it's nice to go over memories and that, but that's not where you're going. You only can go forward. And you're pressed forward in Christ, learning, growing, new visions of missions, learning new thoughts, new things of God, encouraging new people, stepping out and trying new things by faith. Really, the Christian life is an exciting life. The unsaved life is boring. Do you know what unsaved people do? I came from an unsaved family. My, my mother never accepted Christ, and my father was 85 when he accepted Christ. And you know what they do most of the time? They watch television, mega hours, and they just go eat, looking for places to eat, and they drink. Life revolves. That's boring. Christian life is exciting. By the way, it's a very positive life. We're going to heaven. We're learning the things of God. Press forward. Press forward. Keep learning. Keep absorbing. Keep asking questions. Look for new places to serve. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be people who are excited about growth, excited about uh, new things that you give us to do, to serve you, press ourselves, stretch ourselves. May we be the servants you want us to be. Protect us from all the traps and the laziness that, the, that uh, really is part of our, our natural self to be spiritually lazy. 
Help us to these ends, we pray. Amen.